to our study of the story. I am very excited to kick this off and spend the year journeying with you through the story of Scripture. If you will stay with us, I think that this will be a phenomenal year. You will learn probably more than you've ever learned about the Bible, God's story, and what your place in God's story is. So I really hope today is an intro to it. Uh, next week, we will kick off with the, the first um, story of the Bible. will be in Genesis, and we'll actually cover more than just Genesis 1 and the creation. But today is an intro to the whole series. I want to set this up for us. I want you to understand a little bit about what it entails and what you can expect and what your part needs to be. You know, if you go on a journey, you need to pack your suitcase. You need to prepare. You need to have the tools ready to go do a job. So uh, the first thing I want to talk to you about quickly before we get into you know, our lesson from the, the word today is the book. And so uh, the story book. And you have an opportunity to, to pick one of those up from us. Several of you already signed up last week or the previous week for it. Um, if you have $5 to pay for it, awesome, put it in the offering. If you don't and you are committing to read it and to work through the journey with us, then we'll provide it for you anyways. All right, because our goal is always to put resources and to equip people so that they can know God. Yeah. Um, can sometimes you can come and you want to pull out and start somebody else and can get together? Yeah, I've told you a dozen times. You just have to get the people together and you have to get a time period that you talk to me with in advance. You can't call me up and say, can you come right now? It's not going to work. <laughs> mm -hmm. All right. So we would love to have groups of people um, – studying and digging deeper into the story journey. Let me just say this. There is more resources available for this than you will possibly use. Okay, I have resources for men's Bible studies, women's Bible stories, little kids, medium kids, big kids, teenagers, adults. I have resources for every aspect of it. Um, if you look over there, you can actually see on the shelf that um, the, the main book we're using is the one that has all the stats. But if you look and then go to the right, those are more resources for people all the way down to, like, kindergartners, okay? Now, those books are a lot pricier for some unknown reason, probably because there's lots of cool, colorful pictures in them, yeah. Um, but so what we have available is this, this one here, which technically is the adult book, but I think if you're in at least, I don't know what grade, but definitely middle school and up, even probably upper elementary, I don't think there's really a problem. Um, so... If somebody's interested in one of the others, or if you have people that are interested, um, we can get them. Uh, just talk to me about it, and we'll see what we can work out. But the key is that you're going to need that to journey with us, okay? And so I need to ask you, as I talk through this intro this morning, that you really think about your level of commitment. Uh, when you became a believer, if you're a Christian, that came with commitment. It came with commitment to Jesus. If you're like, what are you talking about, Kevin? Well, if you don't understand that you committed to Jesus, I don't know if you really are a Christian. Like, that's what Christianity is. You committed to Jesus, all right? Um, that's the banner you fly. When it talks about a banner and raising a flag, like, no, I'm not flying my football team. I'm not flying my NBA team. I'm flying the Jesus banner. That's what it means to become a Christian. And so there's a commitment involved. When some of you in January of this year, when we had – our, our membership as Kirkman, and we separated off as an independent uh, church, um, and you signed, and you maybe got baptized then or previously, you were saying, I'm in, I'm all in 
Um, Kirkman Community Church is the church where I'm going to come and worship. I'm going to serve. I'm going to give tithes and offerings. I'm going to help God's kingdom expand through this local ministry, Kirkman Community Church. And if you've been falling away from that, I just want to challenge you. Get back on it. Repent and go back to your first love, Jesus, and his church and the local part of that Kirkman Community Church. All right? So back to the book. You need the book. You need the book to be part of our journey. Um, you could kind of do it without it. It's just much, much simpler. Um, you will notice once you pick up your copy of the book that this is going to be the NIV translation. So we always use the Holman here. So normally what I would do, I did this with the Believe series, which is by the same people. Um, I would change the translation to the Holman, and that worked okay because um, it just did. In my sermon, I may use various stuff, but for us, here's the deal. And this is why this book is so cool. How many of you have ever wanted to read through the whole Bible? Okay? Like most of you, okay? Most Christians, even a lot of non-Christians, wish they could read through the whole Bible. Why? Because we want to know. Because the Bible is just an awesome, awesome book. Okay? But how many of you have ever tried it and failed? Okay. About the same number of people, right? So, um, here, here's the deal. This is why the story is so awesome, and this is why I'm just going with the whole book as they made it, etc. Um, they've taken the Bible, okay, and what they've done is they've taken 31 primary stories, all right, right out of the Bible, out of the NIV Bible text, and put them in here. Now, when you do that, because you skipped a bunch of stuff, they also will put some paragraphs in italics, and you can tell that those aren't the Bible parts because they're in italics. And those are paragraphs to transition from one story to the next. So it has the Bible in it. Okay, so that's great. We want to study the Bible, right? We don't want to study someone else's book. We want to study the Word of God. So it's got the Word of God in it. And then it's got the transitions to help you go from one story to the next. The other thing that they did in here is, uh, I don't know if you know it or not, but if you have your regular Bible, like the one sitting on the table, those are not in chronological order. In other words, they're not in the order things happen. Well, what they did in the NIV um, story book here is they put them in the order they actually happen. Now, if you've ever heard me teach, or I've said this before to you guys, I always talk about the Bible as a movie. Well, they're doing the same thing. Randy Frazee and, and people at Zondervan are doing the same thing. They're, they're using the story as, as the metaphor for that. But a movie, it's the same thing. And when you think of the Bible as a movie, it begins to unfold. And you can see what's happening, and you can begin to grasp it better and engage with it. And so that's what they're doing, and that's why you need a copy of this. In fact, um, next week when we do the first chapter, I'm going to encourage you, that if you're picking this up, that you bring it every week with you. I'm going to encourage you probably that you bring it on Wednesdays through a Bible study. And I'm going to encourage you to write in it. In fact, I think next week there's a map right in the front of it. Okay, I'm going to ask you to actually put some places I think on the map alright so we need to understand what's going on in the whole story does that make sense to everybody alright so <clears throat> this morning we're doing a little bit of intro stuff alright because I want you to understand you got to have the tools alright so to be part of this journey you really need your own copy of the storybook alright now the Bible I don't know if you know this but it's the most printed book and the biggest seller of all time always has been do you know that the average family has four or five Bibles at their house? But how often do you think they get read? 
not very often. Not very often. Yeah, not very often at all. So we have them, but we don't read them. And so we really need to choose. All right, you've got to commit. You've got to devote. I think there's about um, 13 or so pages in, in each week's reading. So if you just read a couple pages a day, okay, which, what, what will that take you? Five, ten minutes? Is God worth ten minutes of your time? No. Well, if you don't do it, then he's not. You're right. But if he is worth it, then you need to give him what he's worth. He's worth more than that. You said no, yes. I mean, yes. So maybe that was your heart speaking. I don't know. So I'm not going to judge you for it. All right? Now, ten minutes. If you can't give God ten minutes of your time, then honestly, your heart's just not right. So ten minutes every day, and you know what's going to happen at the end of the year? You're going to look back and say, that was the, the best year of my life to understand the Bible. When I was a, a young Christian, I was at a church, and the pastor, he says that he read through the Bible every month. Okay, that means from Genesis to Revelation every 30 days. Okay, he read about an hour a day of the Bible. Now, I've never done that, um, but he challenged his people all the time. Read it in three months, read it in four months. And so I read it in three months, I've read it in four months, multiple times. It's like ten chapters a day, and you'll get through it in three or four months. And I'll just tell you this. You will never learn more than if you just do that. You can get it on audio. You can do whatever, but immerse yourself in the word. Just as an example of how bad Americans are at uh, knowing the scriptures, okay? Let's just take the Ten Commandments for an example. Watch this video. It's pretty funny. I meant that one. Yes, I'm sure you did. Cindy, still your voice. 
take the Bible for 600? For 600, the answer is they're called epistles. Yes, sir. What was Jesus' crown made out of? No. <laughs> yes, Cindy. What is the wife of an apostle? took two of every living animal into a huge boat to survive the great flood. Cindy. Who is Mr. Doolittle? No. Yes, Jeremy, who is Dr. Doolittle. No. I hope that you maybe already know the Bible a little better than those contestants, but the truth of the matter is that 65% of Americans can't name five of the Ten Commandments, let alone ten of them. 74% of Americans, on the other hand, can name all three of the three stooges. Now, this might be a little adultish for some of my young people here, but Mo, Larry, and Curly. 35% of Americans can recall all six kids from uh, the Brady Bunch. That's way before some of your And 25% um, of Americans can name all seven ingredients of McDonald's Big Mac. I'm not going to ask who can name those. But so we don't know the Bible very well. We live in a biblically illiterate society. <coughs> that means people don't understand the Bible. And if you don't understand the Bible, you don't understand God's story. If you don't understand God's story, you certainly don't understand your story or your place in God's story, which is why we get so confused, why we have such anger problems, why we are so really just messed up and don't know what in the world is going on, don't know how to interpret our world. So there's a new picture up on the screen. Some of you know who this is. Um, some of you may not. But this is a very famous picture of um, what? Who can tell me? Yes. Yes, very good. Okay, so I want to talk for just a minute about two paintings that are going to help us understand the story of the Bible. Two of the most famous works of art in the world. They're going to help us understand how the Bible teaches us about life. So the Mona Lisa is one of them. The Mona Lisa by Leonardo da Vinci. This is the most famous painting in the world, and the value is at over $700 million. Now, that's an interesting story in and of itself, but the size of the painting might actually surprise you. 
It's actually not quite as big as people often think it is. But based on legend and popularity, you might have pictured it to, to stand two stories high. But it's only 20 inches by 30 inches. That's about the size, if you've been to my house, of the picture of my wife and I from our wedding. So it's not that big. But it's worth millions. To the untrained eye, the painting appears somewhat ordinary at first, but as you gaze at the subdued colors and subtle shadows, the details, the translucency of the woman's skin, and the moody atmosphere of the background, it begins to grow on you. And for some reason, you're drawn to her gaze and her smile, and that's why it's kind of famous. There's actually a whole bunch of stuff going on in the background, and um, we, we don't really have time or going to discuss all of that today, but the longer you look, the more you want to know about the woman staring back at you. Miss Lisa, the Mona Lisa. Um, her husband was a wealthy Florentine silk merchant who supposedly commissioned this painting for their new home to celebrate the birth of their second son, Andrea. Good to know, right? But why is the painting so famous? Anyways, usually when you go visit this, uh, there's so many people that they only spend about 15 or so seconds looking at it. So you get to this famous museum, and people spend about 15 seconds. And so in 15 seconds, how much of the picture do you think you really can take in? Not a whole lot, right? Not a whole lot. Actually, when you force it to so far back a bit, because it's so small, you really can't see any major details. So often you have shades that take up glass and a veil on it. So you do... So all that journey, yeah. it's a little bit of a letdown, especially if you thought it was something big, or if you've been to, um, uh, I forget the name of the museum, uh, it's not too far from here, but there's a um, dolly. But if you go there, um, he's got some crazy stuff, but there's also a couple of, of uh, paintings that I kid you not are... Um, as tall or taller than the, the, from the floor to the ceiling here. So if you've seen one of them and you think you're going to go see the Mona Lisa like that, um, I guess like Zorn said, it, it would be quite like disappointing and, and a letdown uh, when you actually go see this. But this is a, a picture of this woman, right? The Mona Lisa, right? And so that is one thing. But let me tell you about another painting. The other painting which actually is it's not too far from there, um, except that you have to take a flight to Rome in a taxi. And then you end up at the Vatican, the Sistine Chapel. Now, the Sistine Chapel used to look like what you see here on the screen, some stars and some whatnot across the top. But um, since then, and you can just leave it there for a minute, um, a guy who... Probably most of you have maybe heard of Michelangelo. Um, Michelangelo is known for many things, but the Sistine Chapel is one of his claims to fame. Um, he lived to be 89 years old. He's also a famous sculptor, and he's done some amazing stuff. But this work that he did, <coughs> that he was commissioned to do, that took him years uh, of literally back-breaking and probably neck-breaking, neck-arching, um, as he was up at the top, painting the ceiling up there, has, has um, if, if you've ever been there, which I haven't, have you been there? Not yet, right? So the this, line the line is too long. Yeah, I went to the, the uh, church one, this church, St. Peter, 
Right, St. Peter's Basilica? Yeah. Right, so why is there a long line to see the Sistine Chapel? Well, because it doesn't look like this anymore. Okay, go to the next slide. When you come in, it looks something like this. Okay, now you can't see all the detail from where you're sitting, but you can see that it now has color and diagrams all over, right? And so the whole thing has been painted. <coughs> the most famous pieces, probably, are up in the ceiling. Okay, it has these vaulted ceilings. And so if you go to the next slide, uh, this is actually the ceiling stretched out like flat for you. And I don't have the time, nor do I actually fully know all the details, but the way he painted this is that it's scenes of the Bible, okay? So the Bible story is all in painted scenes across the Sistine Chapel, okay? And what you have is these different, there's columns and there's a, a, a story figurehead that, that carries you to the next story. And then there's like this mural that has the story. And so, and then the next slide, okay, is the most famous, okay? This is a picture that most of you have probably seen, okay? God reaching out his hand to Adam. And this is the heart of the story of the Bible. Now, the Mona Lisa is a famous painting, but it's kind of a, a single story. The Sistine Chapel, if you were to go there, is a entire story painted in picture in this God reaching out to man is the center of it but the whole thing is an unfolding story that I just think of myself and how I am I imagine if I went I would probably want to spend a day or two there and you probably can't with along that line um, but again the whole Bible story unfolded in picture, do you really just want to sit for five minutes and, and look at it? I mean, you, you can't even take it all in to understand it. And so these two different pictures, the Mona Lisa and the Sistine Chapel, what do they have to do with what we're talking about today? Well, God has a story. And see, the problem is that oftentimes we're like, the Mona Lisa. We have our little portrait of ourselves. We have our little story that's going on, and we don't really see how it fits into God's story. And so there's, there's two levels here. There's an upper story, and there's a lower story. And when we read the story, the book, okay, and we delve into the scriptures, one of the big things that we want you to understand this year, and we're going to talk about big things, okay? When I teach, I, I start um, teaching at BCF again in um, another week or so, and the big idea is what I, I always want to push with students, is that you understand the big idea of what God's talking about, and that's what we want to understand as we study through the story. What is God doing, and how do I fit into that? Okay, what is your place with God? See, God wants us um, to read the Bible, he wants you to read it like you would a mural, a story, a movie. The individual stories on its pages are all connected. They're all intertwining to communicate one overarching, epic, woven story. 
that God wants you to understand. It's woven tighter <clears throat> than anything you can really imagine. You look at these little stories. like You know the story of Adam and Eve. You know the story of Noah. You know the story of Joseph. But that's the problem. You know the story of Joseph. you got to understand how Joseph fits into God's story. You know your story so far. But do you know what your story will conclude with? You know the bits and pieces, but how does it fit together? I liken it to this. How many of you like buffets? Why do you like buffets? Now, when I was younger, I liked buffets because I could eat as much as I wanted. Three plates, four plates, it don't matter. You pay one price, you eat it all. Now I'm older. I don't eat quite as much. So I don't go to buffets usually. And if I go to a buffet, I'm really only there for the variety. I'm not there for the quantity because I can't eat enough to make it really worthwhile. So I'm there for the variety. I get to eat a lot of different things for the one price. So, but here's the thing with the Bible. Most people, if they know the Bible, it's a buffet. What do I mean? You know these stories. You know the creation story. You know the story of the fall. You know about Joseph. You know about Noah. You know about Jesus. You know about Judas. But you don't know how they connect. You don't understand how they're going together. You don't understand why all this stuff in Kings is going on. Why are the Canaanites driven out? What, what is going on with all this stuff? It's like a big buffet. It's a smorgasbord, and it's not connected. you got to get it connected, and that's what's going to happen this year when we look at this story. It's going to get connected for you as you read these portions of Scripture and as we talk about them and as we unpack them. So there's two parts. There's the upper story, and there's the lower story. To better understand this, this is what we're going to focus on. The lower story reveals the here and now of daily life, the experiences and circumstances that we see here on earth. Goals and fears, responsibilities and reactions. In the lower story, you make money, you pay bills, you get sick, you get tired, you deal with breakups and work conflicts and all this type of stuff. That's the lower story. So the lower story is whose story? Yours. Your story. The lower story is what you're doing every day in life. Think of it this way, lower story, because we're down here on the lower area, earth, right? The upper story is going to be concerned with who do you think? God. It's upper, right? So lower story is what you're doing day to day right and then you got the upper story and that's the higher agenda okay that is as you view the bible through this lens you see that god has been up to something amazing from the very beginning he's got a vision he's got a big idea he's got things he's got planned for us and so when we look at the upper story of god his magnificent mural it's like the sistine chapel okay so you go into the sistine chapel all right and if you just look at one painting Okay, you just look at one scene. Do you really understand how it fits into the whole story? No. But if you were able to spend a day or two and travel all through the Sistine Chapel and look at all these stories of how they fit together and see the centerpiece of what God is doing, God reaching out to man, God connecting with man, God wanting to be with his people, then all of a sudden, these other little stories, you see how they fit in and how they're part of the big picture. And that changes your understanding. That changes how you think about things. That changes what you think about Saul, David, Solomon, Samson, Jephthah, Noah. See, 
those guys are characters in God's story. And you have a place in God's story as well. That's one of the things that we need to understand. How does Jesus fit into all this? Well, Jesus, in his amazing way, Jesus lived in the upper story because he's who? God. And he lived in the lower story because he's the man Jesus. And so Jesus is in both of these, upper story and lower story, in a real, real way. So he models this. When Jesus... was praying. He said, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. He was telling the disciples and us that God's will, his big plan for the universe, come first. Now, we've preached on this in the past, but you don't get away from it. God's plan has to come first, not your plan. I was listening to the radio, the Z, this morning on the, on the way to uh, our services, and uh, I don't know what the song was, but it was something about, uh, I think it was a woman singing, and something about um, her, she's got to let go of her dreams. Why? For God's dreams. See, we're told all the time in our American culture, what's your dream? You can do anything you want. And I still probably do this, but I tried to get away from it. I try not to ask as much, what do you want to do? Because it's not about what you want to do. As we sang earlier, it's about him. So when we sang all about you, you weren't looking in the mirror. We were talking about who? God. It's all about God. So it's what does God want for you? We'll see in a, in a minute when we look at our, our scripture for this morning. And so I know this is a long intro, but this is the, the intro and the, the backstory for what we're going to be looking at for the rest of the year pretty much. And so when Jesus teaches the Lord's Prayer, God's will has to come first. The priority of our prayer should be acknowledging that God's will, his master plan, his master plot, succeeds above everything else. So think of it this way. Is it okay for your plans to fail if God succeeds? Or are you so arrogant that you don't care if God's plans would fail, they really can't, but if they could, and yours succeed? then you're trying to be God. That's a problem. We should long for God's upper story to unfold because what God wants for us is always going to be the best. Everything he does is for our own good. Therefore, if the grand mural is still being painted on the ceiling of the universe, see, now we're not talking about the Sistine Chapel. God is painting a picture where? On the universe. And guess what? It's like Michelangelo has that portion Samson, maybe, or he's got David, maybe. God is painting a mural on the universe, and guess who's in it? You are. Your story's in it. If the Sistine Chapel were larger, and you can imagine it painted across the whole universe, there's a little portion that's got you and your little story, the lower story, as it fits into God's story. The upper story. Jesus then says this. He says, Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. This is lower story stuff. Why is it lower story? Because you need to eat. So who are you asking for food? God. You need food down here. you got to pay the bills. Avoid the little voice that says, 
Go ahead, do what feels good. No one will ever know. These are the groanings of daily life, the raw clay that God uses to shape us as vessels on the potter's wheel. So we cry out to God to meet us in the lower story. And guess what? Does he meet us? He does. He meets us in our place, the lower story. Not always according to our liking, though, but he is intimately involved and he cares deeply about the details of our daily lives. He empowers us to live the lower story from an upper story perspective. Everything that happens to us in the lower story, whether good or bad, will work out for our good if we align our lives with him and his upper story. So what about Jesus? How does that fit back in? Well, Jesus not only taught this, he lived it. What did he pray in the garden before his crucifixion? He prayed basically the same thing he taught his disciples to pray. If it's possible, let this cup pass me by. But then what did he say after that? But not my will be done. Whose? Your will be done. Yeah, this is looking pretty messy in this lower story world. They're coming for me. Is there another way to do this? Oh, but the upper story has to succeed. This is what we got. God's plan has got to go through. So I'm willing to align myself with God's plan. I'm willing to surrender and submit for God's plan to take place. That's your biggest challenge. To surrender every aspect. What if what you're wanting to do isn't what God's wanting you to do? What if what God has has set up for you to do is supposed to be this piece of the mural over here, and you're trying to paint yourself in over here? You're going to mess up this story and miss out on your story. Unless you get back where God wants you to be. Jesus understands it. And so you can see just on this next diagram about the, the upper and the lower story and what we're talking about. There's actually two different words in Scripture for time. Some people have argued that these two different times, the kairos and the chronos, deal with the upper and the lower story perspective as you go through Scripture. Think about your own salvation if you're a Christian. I became a believer in 1993, October. I was a freshman in college. So from, from my perspective, what, what story is that, upper or lower? Lower. From the lower story perspective, okay, I became a believer, all right, in 1993. But the scripture tells me that God had saved me in Christ. So there's a theological sense in which, in reality, even before I was born, from an upper story perspective... I was saved 2,000 years ago. Now, that's a little crazy to think about. How can that be? I wasn't even born. Well, from a lower story perspective, you're right. I wasn't born. I wasn't saved. But who knows everything? Who's got everything already planned out? He, he knows all this. So from his perspective, this is why when you begin to understand perspectives, okay, when you begin to understand the upper story perspective, how is it that some people can go through the stressfulest time in their life and not stress? they focused on? Upper or lower? You see, you stress when you're focused on your lower story. But when you get your eyes on the upper story, stress goes away. The peace of God that passes understanding steps in. Because you realize he's already got it worked out. 
and you realize the end of the story. How many of you like superheroes? Spider-Man, who likes Spider-Man? Who likes Peter Parker? Now think about Peter Parker's life for a minute. Now obviously it's make-believe. But if you're a Peter Parker, how's Peter Parker's life going? Stanley? Bad and good. Bad and good. I'm talking before he's Superman, right? Yeah. Yeah. Who did he lose? Uncle Ben. Nice job, Jay. What else? Uh-huh. What else? Uh-huh. And then the spider building up in the museum. Okay, okay, stop right there. Okay, so before that. So Peter Parker's life doesn't look so good, right? Things aren't going so well. So if you don't know anything about superhero stories, and you don't know anything about the ending of it, or you're Peter Parker in the story, you might feel what? Disappointed, sad, depressed. But if you know how every superhero movie ends and you're watching it, what do you know is going to happen? Okay, there's going to be a reversal, right? The whole thing is going to reverse. You know that it starts out on, on a bad note, but you know that it's going to end on a good note. Okay. So, let, let's tie this back to the scriptures for a minute. This is why you need to know the story. Because how does God's story end? On a good note. For who? For, for God and his people. Which is why it's so important that you're one of God's people. It does not end on a good note for those who are not God's people. For God and his people, it ends on a good note. Have you ever heard some old preacher or some old evangelist or some missionary from somewhere, and they're going through a horrible time that you can't imagine, but they still seem happy? Yeah. What story are they focusing on? God. Yeah, the God story, the upper story. Okay? They're focused on what God is doing. They're focused on the end of the story and not what's happening right now in the middle of the story. They got their eyes on Jesus. They got their eyes on where they belong. So that's what you need to be challenged to do. So we're going to be looking through the timeline of Scripture. <clears throat> all right? Now, you probably can't read all of this, okay? Because it's too small for right now, and that's fine. It doesn't matter. Okay? But it's a timeline. Okay? There's going to be five main events. You can see them down at the bottom, only in the sense that there's five dots that you can see. I'll show you what they are in just a moment. And these are going to be the things that are going to take us through the Scripture. And so I'm going to help you understand that you can actually learn the Bible story with five pictures. There's many ways you can do this, okay? I, I've taught it with colors, the wordless book. You can do it with five pictures also. And so before I jump into my Scripture, I only have one verse we're going to focus on this morning, so it's not much, okay? <clears throat> this is an intro message. But there are five acts, okay? Five acts or five movements. And those five acts are all going to have an image that goes with it. What's an act? An act is... No? What's an act? 
Nope. An act is like in a play. Okay? There's a part of it, right? So chapter one, chapter two, or act one, act two, or movement one, movement two. The storybook uses the word movements. Okay? I'm more familiar with the word act. Okay? But that's from plays. If you go watch a play, it'll say like act one, intermission, act two. Okay? Or act one, two, three, intermission, act four or five, and then you leave, right? So the Bible has only five acts or five movements. What does that mean? It means that there's only five big sections. Lots of little sections, but five big ones. And I'm actually going to teach them to you right now, and then we're going to break them down over the next year. The very first one is the garden. Okay, this covers the first 11 chapters of Genesis. What's the picture for it? A tree. Why? Well, well, they're where? They're in a garden, right? Plus, it's, there is the tree that they weren't supposed to eat from, right? So the way I've done it here is so that's just a, a black and white tree, okay? So it reminds you of several things. you got the garden. It reminds you of the sin, etc. We'll unpack that a little bit later. But the first image for the first act is what? It's the garden, right? So that's Genesis 1 to 11. The second one is going to be Israel. That's going to take you from Genesis 12. Now get this. Genesis 12 all the way to Malachi. That's the last book of the Old Testament. So the whole rest of the Old Testament. So the Old Testament only covers two pictures, right? You got the garden, and then you got Israel. God's people, Israel. That's it. Two. The next one, the third one, is Jesus. The cross. That's going to cover Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. That's the gospel. So, so far, we got the first 11 chapters. That's the what? Garden. Then you got the whole rest of the Old Testament. That's Israel. Then you got the Gospels. That's Jesus. Okay? Then the next one, the Ichthus. Right? Christians or the church. Right? So the church. All right? That's going to cover the rest of the New Testament except for Revelation, the last book. And so our last image, our fifth act, our fifth movement is going to be the new garden, a little bit of a garden city. But in this one, what I've done, they're slightly different in the book, but here mine's all colorful, okay? Now, it was all colorful when God first made it in the Garden of Eden, but, you know, they messed it up. So it's going to be beautiful, new created, new garden city, whole thing, okay? And that's going to be the book of Revelation. So... These five pictures, okay? What's the first one? The garden. garden. That covers Genesis 1 through 11. What's the second one? Israel. Israel. That covers Genesis 12 through? Malachi. Malachi, the end of the Old Testament, right? What's the next one? Jesus, Jesus, the cross, right? That covers the Gospels. What's the next one? The church, okay? And then... The last one is the new garden. Now, here is another just quick thing to help you understand these. What's on both ends? It begins and ends with a a garden, right? The tree, right? What's right in the middle? Jesus, the cross, right? And so it's, it's like math, right? It's symmetry. And then on either side of the cross, you've got the group of people that God was working through and with for his story. So God had a big picture plan, the upper story, and for his upper story, he's working 
on the earth, lower story, with a group of people. The first group before the cross was Israel. The second group after the cross is the church, right? So garden on both sides, cross in the middle, Israel and the church on both sides of the cross. Pretty simple, right? Okay, so with that being said, (coughs) give me just a couple of minutes, and let's look at Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10. I want to end this this morning with helping you understand just very briefly (coughs) how important your role is and what God thinks of you because you are his masterpiece. You are his work of art. Yes, what Leonardo da Vinci made is nice. Yes, what Michelangelo made is nice. But you are God's work of art. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10. Says, for we are his creation, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared ahead of time so that we should walk in them. When did God prepare these good works? Ahead of time. Now let's talk about this a minute. This is the Holman translation. It says creation, okay? It says, for we are his creation, okay? Now that's actually from the Greek word poema. has to do with a work, a creation. Poetry later, we'll see in a minute. But this is often translated as workmanship and may contrast God's work saving us with our own work, which was sinful. Now that God has started a good work in us, which he's going to finish according to Philippians 4, or I mean Philippians 1, 6, we can begin doing good works in his power through the Holy Spirit. Did you know that you can't really do any good works until you're saved? You're like, yeah, but Kevin, I helped that old lady across the street. I, I gave some money to a homeless guy. Yeah, but you see, it doesn't count for anything with God. It's nice that you did it, but it doesn't count because your good works don't earn you anything. But once the Holy Spirit comes in, now you can actually start doing what God created you to do. See, God is the sustainer of life. He's the creator. He's the giver. He's the sustainer. Notice in verse 1 of Ephesians 2 what God says. So we're going nine verses back. This is how Ephesians 2 starts in verse 1 and 2. It says, you were dead. You were what? You were dead in your trespasses and your sins. So you're dead and God performs a good work. What's the good work? He makes you alive. So God does a good work in you, making you alive. So you're going around doing all these things that you think are good works, and God says you're dead. Well, do dead people do good works? No, dead people don't do good works. Dead people don't do any works. So your works are as nothing to God, which is why Isaiah says all your good works are as filthy rags. What that really means is bloody menstrual rags. So, yeah, they're worthless. Nobody wants any of those around, okay? If you don't know what I mean, Google it, I guess. So, or ask me later. <laughs> My wife just gave me a look. I have all these kids Googling that. Okay, you can ask me later, maybe. All right, so anyways, the point is the best thing you can do as an unbeliever is garbage. Might sound a little harsh, but you got to understand where you're fitting into the upper story. So the Apostle Paul writing this says, you're dead. You're not alive. You're not halfway alive. No, you're dead in your sins and your trespasses until God comes in and he makes you alive. Spiritually dead. He continues in Ephesians 2, verse 4 and 5, and this is one of the greatest phrases in the scriptures, but God. 
When you see but God, you know he's doing something. It says, but God, who is rich in what? Mercy. Because of his great love. So he's got mercy because he's got love. Because God is love, 1 John 4, 8. His great love that he had for us. He made us, what's the next word? Alive. He made us alive because we were what? Dead. Dead. He made us alive with the Messiah, with Jesus. So is Jesus dead or alive? alive? He's alive, hello. Even though we were dead in trespasses, you are saved by grace. So, God didn't leave you dead. No. Instead, if you're a follower of Jesus, instead, out of his love, his mercy, he made you alive. Maybe some of you are still dead. You think, well, no, we're not dead, Kevin. I'm right here. I don't mean physically. Yes, you're sitting in the room, physically alive. But maybe you're spiritually dead. You're not connected to God yet. Today could be the day. You don't have to stay dead, people. God is the giver and taker of life. But he's also life itself. So if you don't have God, you don't have what? Life. He is life. What is heaven and hell all about? Everyone talks about the fires and all that stuff. Okay, that's in scripture. I'll preach on it if we, when we preach on hell, okay? But here's the deal. What is heaven about? Heaven is about life in contrast to death. Heaven is about being with God. God is life. No God equals no life. Why do Adam and Eve die? Because they are kicked out of the presence of God. And what's the rest of the story about? God getting his people back in his presence. That's what it's about. So when God saves you, you join his people in making all things new. How did it start? When he made you new, he made you alive. You begin to take your place, your proper place in his story of the universe. It's the biggest and best story ever. It's the most awesome picture and largest mural ever created. If it would take days to understand and, and gawk and look and, and comprehend the Sistine Chapel, how long would it take to understand all the intricacies and little people stories of God's huge story. Imagine getting to know the story of every person that's ever lived and how it fits into God's plan. Even Hitler, they all fit into God's plan. You could be a protagonist or an antagonist. You know what those are? That's a good guy and a bad guy, right? Okay? You learned that in English class? That's why English is important for helping you understand the Bible. You a good guy or a bad guy? See, here's your only choice. You are in God's story. You don't have a choice. When you're born, physically, you're in God's story. The question is, are you a good guy or a bad guy? Are you a protagonist or an antagonist? Are you helping God with his story, or are you fighting God in his story? Which one? So back to Ephesians 2.10, and you being God's creation, just like all of the earth in his creation. Except here the idea also carries with it the idea of a beautiful piece of art or a masterpiece. Which is why the New Living Translation translates it like this in Ephesians 2.10. They say we are God's masterpiece. He has created us anew in Christ Jesus so we can do the good things he planned for us long ago. Until you're recreated and made alive in Christ, you can't do those good things he's planned for you. You can't help 
with the story that he's doing. You're an antagonist until this is fixed. This is what God has in store for your life. Like the poet that pens the lines of his poem, the Lord is writing the script of our lives. He has a story for us to live if we'll follow and obey him. Can you imagine? I don't know what your favorite song is, but that song was written by somebody. They wrote lyrics, words, and put them together. Can you imagine if those words said, no, I don't want to be there, and they moved themselves around? What would that do to the song? Mess it all up, right? Change the song? Whole new story? Now see, that's what happens when you refuse to do what God wants you to do. The only difference is that because God is the creator of everything, he makes sure that his plan still ends the way he wants it to. You just miss out on being that beautiful melody that was supposed to be in there. The melody's still going to play. You just don't get to be in it. The touchdown's still going to happen. You just don't get to help. That's what's going on. When you get in your place where God wants you to be, you get in position so God can place you where he wants you. You surrender yourself to him. As the artist paints his work of art with colors that are both bright and dark, the Lord is brushing your life with the brilliance of joy, peace, happiness, and love, but he's also accenting it with the dark colors of trials and sorrows that we just learned about from the book of James. He's working in you in good times and bad so that you might bring glory to God and be a blessing to others by your actions, your attitudes, and your adoration, your love for Christ. His plan is that your walk or lifestyle should be characterized by goodness, godliness, question for you today as we begin our journey in God's story is simply this how is your part going to play out are you going to be the protagonist or the antagonist Peter Parker was able to do some pretty amazing things with his superhuman skills. But Peter Parker is fiction. Jesus Christ is not. When the Holy Spirit comes in and makes you alive, what Peter Parker could do with his superhuman strength was nothing compared to what you see in the pages of Scripture. The pages of Scripture stories, they're real. Do you want to see real lives change? You want to see your life change? You want to be part of what God's doing? God's not dead, guys. Nietzsche tried to kill God a long time ago. Well, Nietzsche's dead. God's not. You want to be part of what God's doing around the world? Get plugged in. Get surrendered. And if you don't know him, give your life to him today. Let's pray. Father, we're so thankful that regardless of what's going on in our lives, you... <coughs> are continuing your story. You are making happen what you need to happen so that people all around the globe would know the name of Jesus. People all around the globe could become part of your story. God, forgive us for when we have fought you on it. When those 
brush strokes of darkness come across our life and, and we think that you're mad at us, that you hate us, that uh, our whole life is falling apart and we don't realize that that is just the cr- contrast for the beautiful, bright, joyous strokes all around those contrasts. God, I especially pray this morning for anybody that doesn't have salvation this morning, that they would just surrender their hearts to you. They would cry out to you and confess their sin. They would just say, God, I realize I'm a sinner. I am dead. I'm dead inside. I'm dead spiritually. Come in and make me alive. Forgive me of my sins. I realize, Jesus, you did die for my sins. You paid for my sins. You rose from the dead. God, make me part of your awesome story. Help me to have a story that ends well with you. Save me today, and I'll do what you ask. For those of you that are already believers, let's make 2017 the best year of our lives so far. But getting plugged in to God's word, to God's people, and being serious about it. Don't take this half-heartedly. If you're not serious about it, things will go by the wayside. God, help us to be people of devotion to you. Christ's name. Amen.